Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please turn in your Bibles and follow along, or they'll be on the screens to the left and right. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by are no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall come to a ruler, for you shall first, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they had offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own countries by another way. This ends the reading of God's word, and at this time, children ages three to kindergarten can be dismissed to the little landing. Well, good morning, faith family at the landing. Merry Christmas to you all. Let's pray. Take, Father, the glories of your Son born as King of the Jews in Matthew 2 and feed us now on it in this next few minutes. Strengthen the body of Christ here at the landing and those watching by live stream or recording with such a strength, such a fuel, such a hope that the fires of their worship burn more brightly than they ever have before that we find our hearts more thankful, we find ourselves aware of how less deserving we are, we find ourselves more in awe and wonder of Christ, more emboldened to share the love of Christ with others, more generous, taking risks and giving away ourselves and our belongings and our opportunities, our gifts and our time for the cause of Christ around the world. Thank you for how we were led in worship by prayer and the word and singing and by a witness of testimony that you miraculously feed, freed those 17 from captivity in Haiti. And you can do that in Nigeria and around the world. You can heal from COVID. You can heal from other diseases. Everything in the world is ordered. Everything in the universe is ordered after the wise counsel of your will. So in rest and in rejoicing, we gather ourselves 
as it were, around your word and before your throne and ask you to speak to us, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before the first Christmas, the world was in darkness, and I was meditating, as you heard if you were here on Christmas Eve, on how at the fullness of time, Christ was born. Light came, and darkness had covered the earth before that, so I came up with the phrase benighted chaos to refer to B.C., before Christ. That was my idea on Christmas Eve. Well, after Christmas Eve service, Susan York was talking to Kath and me, and she said, A.D. could then mean awaited dawn. Perfect. Brilliant. I totally agree. So benighted chaos gives way to awaited dawn, the coming of the light of the Son of God. The birth of Jesus Christ is the light of the Son of God, and we're now living in the daytime. The light of Christ has dawned. We who live in this age, by God's great mercy, live during the daytime. In this massive understanding of Christmas, in the incarnation of the Son of God, what's our response? Our response throughout the whole scriptures, but especially here in our passage, is that we would worship. Worshippers is what Christmas is for. Christ came into the world, born as a baby, to create worshipers for his glory. The wise men come to worship, and all who reject Christ reject him because they do not want to worship him. They wish to worship something else, ultimately themselves. Matthew, the gospel writer, has as his aim creating worshipers who bow down to the glory of Christ. That's what the whole gospel is written for. Whether it is sick children healed or lepers coming back and bowing in worship or uh, women who bring their disciples and they bow before Jesus or the disciples themselves or a once demonized girl comes and bows. Even Satan himself is commanded to bow down and worship Jesus as he comes to the end of his temptation in the wilderness. Worship is all through the Gospel of Matthew. Worship is all through the Gospel of Matthew because it's all through the Bible and all through reality. It's like Matthew takes a bugle to his lips and he blows Reveille, and he says, wake up everyone, Christ is born, he is here to receive your worship. So here with the wise men gathering around the newborn king, they worship, they bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they bow the knee with reverence and honor, and yet joyfully they make a trek of Thousands of miles. One scholar said 9,000 miles. They make a trek that took them well over a year. They, they gave up their reputation. They gave up their, their callings and their income probably. They gave up maybe their, their respect among their family members and their friends. They certainly gave up any semblance of reasonability coming from places like Babylon or Persia where the worship of a small child seemed mythical and ridiculous. Who would devote their entire life to worshiping a small child born in a backwater community like Bethlehem? Nobody spends time in Bethlehem. No one goes to Bethlehem. It's militarily and politically and economically meaningless. It's not even on the map. Even if you're a chief priest and a scribe, 
You don't spend your time in Bethlehem. You you go to Jerusalem or to Rome or to Athens or any other large and important city, Alexandria. You, You go where all the activity is. You go where all the conversation is, where all the influential people are. Even if you know that the scriptures prophesy that God will send his child to be born, his son, in Bethlehem, you don't spend any time in Bethlehem. That would be a waste of time and worthless. Matthew means to create for us worship in our hearts. He means for us to look at the Christ child and bow low and offer gifts and give of of our lives and our time, even our reputations, and dedicate everything we are, just as the wise men do, to worship him. That's what the point of the book of Matthew is. That's what the point of this passage is. That's what the point of my message is. The way Matthew does it here in Matthew 2, 1 to 12, that Tom just read is he gives seven witnesses as I count. Let's go through all seven witnesses, and as I show you quickly, each witness, you can let each of them be, as it were, like a log of kindling put on the fire of your worship, and you can say, I am going to worship Christ all the more in my heart and with my life because I've seen these seven witnesses. The first is Matthew himself. Matthew makes his gospel the constant fulfillment of all the promises God made in the Old Testament. That's why we saw the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and how it was ordered according to all the 14s and all the the, uh, epochs of David. We see throughout the book of Matthew all the fulfillments of God's promises coming to pass in Jesus Christ. Promise and fulfillment, that's the banner over the gospel of Matthew. You might know that the ancients liked to write their their massive works the way we climb mountains. They put the summit right in the middle. That is, everything leads up to the high summit of their main point, and then after they get there, everything cascades down from it. That's how Matthew writes his gospel. The high point of the trip to climb a mountain is right in the middle. So what's in the very middle of the book of Matthew? If you took all the verses on either side, cut the book of Matthew right in half, you'd come to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. This is the main point of the book of Matthew. It's the main point of the entire gospel, and one might say the main point of the entire Bible. You'll recognize it as I read. Verse 15, 16, and 17. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. When you were born and all through your life, in all your teaching, as you are arrested and you're dying, as you're buried, as you rise again, and as you ascend to the Father's right hand, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew's gospel exists to show that. Read it through, maybe this afternoon, where you see leading up to it is all the things and truths and events that point to Christ being the Son of God, the Son of the living God, and from that point after, everything cascades out. Those who oppose him become clear. Those who adore and worship him become clear. And we see all the way to the very conclusion that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship in the book of Matthew and in our lives. Matthew is the first witness. He comes to tell us that Christ has come to fulfill the promises of God. Under Christ, there will be peace on earth. Under Christ, 
all of God's government will be established. Under Christ, all of God's mercy will be lavished on the poor and the afflicted. Because of Christ, all sin will be forgiven to those who call on his name. Because of Christ, God's glory is vindicated. It looks like he's soft on sin. It looks like he doesn't care if people are sinning against him for thousands of years. It looks like God doesn't care about his own worth and his own glory until Christ comes and dies on the cross and says, this is what God thinks of all the sins of the world. He kills his own son, crushing his head, and God's glory is vindicated. Matthew is the first witness When you see the overarching picture of the book of Matthew, you come back to Matthew chapter 2 and you see how he's telling us that Christ is born a king, the son of the living God, and he invites you to come and bow. That's the Greek word that Matthew uses for worship throughout the whole gospel. Bow. Bow in your heart. Take away a steel spine and a brass forehead and a strong, proud, nobody's going to make me submit kind of attitude and bow before him in worship. The second witness is the Magi. Matthew introduces them in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These are sky watchers, stargazers, astrologers and astronomers studying and tracing the stars and the planets. They were scientists of their day. They probably traveled, as I mentioned before, as long as a year from Persia. They brought their gifts. They they came in all their entourage and regalia. And they meant to come and bow their knee to a king. They called him king of the Jews, and they brought gifts. They were led by a star, as the scriptures record. Where did they get the idea that they should come to Jerusalem? Where did they get the idea about a king, a king of the Jews, born as a baby? We don't know. My suspicion is, since there are so many similarities between Daniel chapter 9 and what happens here in the wise men, that it might be that descendants of Daniel, who lived 400 years before, may have recorded the promises and the truths that Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 9, and maybe they were preserved for wise men, magi, scientists like this, to observe Daniel's teaching, to listen to the same angel, Gabriel, who foretold the birth of Christ to Mary, was also the very angel that spoke directly to Daniel. We don't know exactly what caused the Magi to come from Persia, from Babylon. We don't know why they came, but they came intent on worship. Matthew holds them up and he says, look at how they worship Christ. Look at all the wealth they had, the capacity to travel. Look at all the influence they had. And yet they were willing to risk it all for the sake of worshiping Christ. Verse 2 says the wise men saw a star that caused them to come all the way west to Jerusalem and ultimately to Bethlehem. Notice two stunning facts about these wise men that Matthew holds out for us. First, they study the stars, but they don't worship the stars. They worship the maker of the stars. 
They study the stars and the planets, but they don't worship the nature or the planets or the stars that they observe. The wonder of the planets that they see causes them to worship the one who made them wonderful, not the stars themselves. If anyone uses their eyes or a telescope or even the most technologically developed telescope that shoots up from the ground a million miles away from Earth and sees those stars as they are or even as they were and does not bow before King Jesus but bows before the wonder of those stars, makes themselves an idolater. Here, these wise men surely must have been dismissed as crackpots, as irrational, mocked as following a myth. But they came with their gifts and with great cost of time and of wealth and of their own standing in order that they might worship the one who holds the stars in place even while he lies in a manger. Christ's birth as king of the Jews was not merely Herod's successor. They didn't come to say, we know there's somebody on the throne put there by Rome, Herod, and and we know he's the current king of the Jews, we're looking for his successor. No, that's not what they meant at all. They meant they were coming to worship the one who ruled over all kings, king of all kings, and they were driven to come worship him with joy. Look down the paragraph to verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Complete abandon. Complete falling before Christ and worshipping him. With joy in their hearts. They're not bored. They're not dutiful. They're not pressured to do this by anybody. This is joy welling up. In fact, there's no verse in the Bible that tells more about joy, repeats the word joy more times in the original than verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's the most joyful verse in the Bible. Here's the wise men in all joy coming before the Christ child, bowing low to worship him and offering their very lives to him. I think one of the goals God may have in the mysterious permitting of a global pandemic is to cause a mighty worldwide ingathering of the lost from all the nations, including places like Iraq and Iran and Nigeria and Haiti, China, United States, to become worshipers of King Jesus. Do you worship him that way? Do you just say, I want to give my whole life to him. I want to bow down before him. I want to do it with joy. In fact, it's the greatest joy of my life to worship Jesus. I don't endure the worship of Jesus. I delight in the worship of Jesus. That's what the wise men said. That's the kind of worship that Matthew is awakening with his bugle call, his bearing of witness. First himself, and then the Magi. Third, Herod. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You can tell and feel almost exactly why Herod is so fearful. This word troubled here means uh, terrified at having seen a ghost. Terrified at having seen the supernatural. 
That's what Herod is terrified at. He is encountering the fact that the living God is born in his Judean region, in his dominion. It's surely a threat to him. This is, this is Herod. This is the guy who dies uh, in 4 AD, awaited dawn. <laughs> and he was so maniacal that he was terrified when one of his sons had, had designs to take over his father's throne. Herod had his own son assassinated. He's terrified that this one-born king of the Jews is going to take over his throne. But he has no clue how big of a throne the king of the Jews is going to take over. He's going to take over Herod's throne and every other throne that's ever existed or shall exist and rule over them all, as he does even from his manger. Herod is terrified. And it says, all Jerusalem with him. So when an abusive ruler is terrified because he's seen the supernatural or has encountered the supernatural, then everybody who's under his abuse are now getting nervous as well. Everybody's scared. What's he going to do? Who's he going to make a scapegoat? What's he going to change? What's he going to tax? What violence is he going to wield? What abuse is he going to level against us? Herod didn't know the scriptures, but here's the Magi coming from Persia, from the east, and they seem to know the scriptures. Herod is the blind one, but he's living right there in Jerusalem. He has chief priests and scribes around him. He has the Bible in his own language, and yet he's completely blind to this Bethlehem-born king of the Jews right in his own region. Fearful, angry, blind, and maniacal, he hatches a plan. Oh, yes, yes. Let's get the chief priests and the scribes together and I'll have a little theological conference and I'll find out from them exactly where this king of the Jews is going to be born. And I'll pinpoint exactly where he's going to be born and I'll send someone to get rid of the baby. And I have no threat from another king who would take over my throne. And then he says, even to the wise men who come and speak to him, he says, Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them when the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the chief priests and scribes explain it's in Bethlehem where the child is born. And he finds out exactly where. And so he sends these wise men to tell him so that he can go worship. Well, of course, Herod plans to worship. Herod plans to worship, but he doesn't plan to worship Jesus. He plans to worship himself. Herod is a dark witness to the precious, true kingship of Christ. He is a witness to the praiseworthiness and the blessedness and the peace and the glory that Christ possesses and gives. By contrast, he's agitated, turmoiled, and twisted within. He plans to murder Jesus as an infant. We see that in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 2. And, and this murderous foretaste inside Herod comes to pass a generation later when his son approves of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in doing so, they expose their own godless wickedness and they achieve by killing Jesus the very glory that he comes to bring and show where he dies on the cross for sinners. Even Herod types 
who would repent. Ask yourself, is there any Herod-like self-promotion in me that wants to be rid of Jesus? Does Jesus' birth threaten any of my pet desires? Look with brightened eyes at your own life and see if there be any treasonous desires within you. Confess them and flee them. Christ came into the world to die. You see hints and foretastes of that even in things like the spices that the wise men brought, gold and frankincense and myrrh, spices that will be purchased and used for Jesus when he's buried 33 years from now. But he came not just for the victims of people like Herod. He came for the victimizers like Herod. The fourth witness is the religious leaders, chief priests and scribes. They're the ones that Herod gathered to himself. Look at their answer. Verse 4, in assembling all the chief priests and scribes to the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. All they do is give the proof text. All they do is just give the answer, oh, over in Bethlehem, that's where the baby will be born. We must be careful that we don't reduce the Bible down to just giving proof texts for answers to small questions of unbelief. Rather, we must keep on reading to recognize exactly who this person born is. And if he is who the Bible says he is, then the chief priests and the scribes should be leading the worship of Christ. That's what chief priest means, lead worshiper. Why were they spending time currying favor from Herod? Why weren't they in Bethlehem preparing for the birth of the child? Why weren't they on the edge of their seat saying, oh, we know that he will be born king of the Jews in Bethlehem, so let's go to Bethlehem. And, and you wise men who are coming, you want to go with us? Join us. We're already there worshiping. No, the chief priests and the scribes were busy doing church stuff. They read their Bibles to get answers and they mollycoddled Herod and curried favor with him. They didn't read on. By their very silence, by their dullness, by their dismissal of the glory of the infant, these wise or these, these chief priests and scribes are very much like the future iterations of chief priests and scribes, descendants of them just a generation later, who will call for the crucifixion of Jesus. Because Jesus being born into people who are very, very religious upsets their power and their wealth and their whole identity. I don't ever want to find myself caught up with what the chief priests and the scribes are doing. I want to be like the wise men, unclean, pagan, cultic worshipers. They have absolutely nothing to commend themselves to a Jewish baby born king of the Jews. They only have a vague idea of what the scriptures foretell. They haven't enjoyed the patriarchs or the promises. They don't enjoy the covenants. They don't enjoy all the experiences of the people of Israel. And yet they're willing to leave everything and risk everything to come and worship in Bethlehem. 
the fifth witness, the scriptures themselves. Listen to the passage from Micah 5.2, written by the prophet Micah, the scriptures witness to who Christ is. This is what the chief priests and the scribes should have read more fully. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. What the chief priests and scribes should have realized is what you and I now realize, that this baby born to Mary and Joseph existed for eternity past. He's the ancient of days. He's the one who has existed always. There never was a time when the Son of God was not. This is the the ancient, eternal God in the person of his Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three God, all three eternal, all three worthy of eternal worship. The ancient of days becomes a newborn. That's why we worship him. This is the great miracle that undergirds all of Christianity where we worship not just a man and not just a distant God, but the God-man. One person with two natures, fully man, fully God. That's the miracle behind the incarnation and the birth of Christ at Christmas. So Micah goes on in chapter 5 and, and, and worships, and this is what the chief priests and scribes should have known. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be there peace. The scriptures themselves take us into broader and deeper and higher witness. Now we begin to see why it's the wise men who come and they seem to know more about Christ than anybody else. It's because the nations are called to gather around Jesus, recognizing he was born king of the Jews, but not for the Jews only. He's king of all the nations. He's king of every ethnicity, every people, every tribe, and every tongue. He was born to be worshipped by men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The wise men out of Persia are a bold, clear statement that we serve a global God who means to be worshipped by all the nations. You just wonder, don't you? What would it be like for those magi and the wise men, however many there were, to return back having given their gifts to Mary and Joseph and the young Christ who was maybe a year and a half, two years old at the time? And they returned back to Persia, to Babylon, to the place where they came. They would have a story to tell. We saw the Christ. He was in this tiny little manger in a little cave where they keep animals. Oh, great, you took off three years ago for that? Yes, and with joy, the greatest joy conceivable, we are worshipers of Jesus Christ. The sixth witness, it's the star. I take the star to be actually a comet. I find the book by 
Colin Nickel, who argues and makes a great case that it's almost assuredly a God-directed comet. But whatever it is, it is a God-directed guide that led these magi from the east all the way west to Jerusalem and ultimately to Bethlehem. Look at verses 9 through 11. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I don't want you to miss it. Herod, I'm not going to let him figure it out, but you wise men, I'm going to show you exactly where it is. You follow the star because you're coming in joy to worship my son and I want you to not miss him. But Herod will keep him in the dark. All he wants to do is kill him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Does it stun you that the Lord moves heaven and earth to bring worshipers to his son? Does it stun you that the Lord orders nature to bring worshipers to his son? What is God doing in nature right now to point somebody to the worship of Jesus? When when, when you see snow falling or sun shining, when you see waves roiling or when you see birds or insects or animals... Uh, When you see deep into the skies the formation of constellations or planets or galaxies, do all of those act like the star does for the wise men as a guide to point you to worship Christ? Everything in nature is meant for you to say, there's a star bringing me to Bethlehem so that I would give my whole life and all that I have to Christ. Yesterday, day before yesterday, the James Webb Space Telescope launched up into the sky and is going to aim for an orbit one million miles away from Earth, four times the distance that the moon is away from the Earth. And it's going to orbit there for five or six years until its fuel runs out. And it's going to try to look with a mirror deep into the history of our universe You know what they're going to find when they look deep into the history of our universe? God's there with stars and galaxies saying, worship Christ. That's what they're going to find. I could save them a lot of money. (laughs) But it's fun to see it anyway. This is not any king of the Jews. Nobody cares where Herod is. Nobody cares who came before him or who came after him. Nobody cares where the chief priests are and where the scribes are. But all around the world, people worship Jesus Christ. His light has dawned. The darkened nations of the world now have the wonderful possibility of hearing Someone like Thomas and Matty Florestano going to Africa and sharing the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or other missionaries that are sent out in an apostolic fashion, that is, they are sent with the message to go to places where it causes uh, great risk and great cost and, and sometimes even great danger because very often there's no welcome to be found for missionaries who come bearing the name of Christ. And yet it's to the very unwelcoming people that the gospel comes each time. 
to create worshipers for the Lord Jesus Christ from all over the globe. And, and God will even use a comet or a star directed by him to bring his worshipers to Christ. So do you know anyone like the wise men who's very scientifically minded, but they're curious, they're not yet believing or trusting Christ, but you think they might be on the cusp? Pray that they look to nature and see something glorious in nature that points them to God. The birth of a child, the healing of their bodies, some glorious demonstration of the beauty of God's created earth. All meant to point reluctant, cold-hearted self-worshippers to give up the hopeless enslavement and bondage of worshiping self in order to be free to worship Christ and Christ alone. The final witness. How kind is God to give a dream to these unclean pagan magi and warn them not to return back to Herod. You just can imagine how ticked off Herod was. Don't go back to him. Depart to your own country by another way. Surely this was the mercy of God protecting the wise men, but much more than that, he was also keeping Herod blind. Herod wasn't going to know exactly what door to knock on. Herod was kept in the dark by this kind dream God gave to the wise men to depart to their own country by another way. But maybe most of all and most importantly of all, God was protecting his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I mean for him to grow and I mean for him to be protected and I mean to rule over wherever he lives and wherever he walks and I mean to be his shepherd. I'm going to clear the path in front of him. Oh, don't you long for this as a parent that you have the ability to clear the path in front of your precious children and that never ends? Grandparents do that for grandchildren and friends do that for one another. Spouses do that for one another. We, as members of the body of Christ, we just long to shepherd and care for one another. God is shepherding and caring for his precious son, Jesus Christ, here by sending the wise men home another way so that Herod has no clue what door to knock on with his murderous intent. And do you know anyone who is very near to trusting in the Lord, but they need to see a comet, a star, or maybe they need a dream. <laughs> maybe they need a dream. God is giving dreams all through the scriptures and all through the history of the church to people who need to know that there is a Christ and that that, that Christ is declared in his word and that they should seek him. Nothing is too far out from God's reach to use to draw his worshipers to himself. I love to read of the accounts and the records of people having dreams over in the Middle East. And they are yearning for those dreams and, and, and night visitations to be fulfilled when they find a Bible or when they're introduced to the person of Jesus Christ. And almost instantly they become worshipers because they have been so well prepared by God's Holy Spirit. 
All these seven witnesses are meant to cause us to worship. So what am I asking for? Am I asking just for coming on the Lord's day? No. Am I asking for you to physically bow? No. Am I asking for you to give something more of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? No. What I'm asking for, what I think the Holy Spirit is asking for of me and of us out of Matthew chapter 2, as he gives Christ for us to worship, is that we would be just like these wise men. We would give everything to worship Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you find within yourself any resistance to a complete and utter devotion to Christ, if you find anything in your life that holds you back, keeps one foot in and one foot out, any resentments, any bitternesses, any sorrows, any angers, lay them before the Lord. Give them up. Turn them over to Him. Submit yourself and your body as a living sacrifice. I don't have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I have myself, Lord. I want the maximal joy that you have designed for me as a believer with your people when I come into the presence of your King Jesus born as the Son of God, worthy of all my worship, worthy of all the world's worship, worthy of all worship everywhere. Arise. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's pray. I feel, Lord, a desire welling up in me to worship you more boldly, more freely, more passionately, more zealously, more clearly than I yet do. I don't want to reduce it down to just programming or disciplines or practical habits of my life. Those are all helpful, but they are not the substance of what you're calling us to here in Matthew 2. There is a joy and an honor and a complete life-risking dedication that I see in these wise men that I want to be real in my life and in our lives more than it already is. I don't know what that looks like for each of us. It might look different for each person or family or for us as a church family. But I do know, Lord, you are calling us to offer and dedicate and commit ourselves with a full-hearted, spine-tingling, life-risking, joy-abounding kind of dedication that we have yet seen Thank you for the way you are creating worshipers around the world. Thank you for the way that many have gone out for the sake of the name and are expending, as it were, their lives 
And some of us might very well be called likewise to go to the ends of the earth and to be sent out by a church like the Landing for the sake of the worship among the nations. As one writer says, missions exist because worship doesn't. But more than that, for those of us called to send and to remain, you are calling for us to be absolutely white hot and unreserved in our lavish worship of you. And that's what I feel presses on me happily right now and on us. I would pray for everyone in the hearing of my voice now that by your spirit you would trigger and grip their thinking and their hearts and their their passions to say, yes, that's what I'm going to do to worship Jesus. I want people to know how precious he is to me. I don't want to be a closet worshiper. I want to be bold and generous and risk-taking in a way I haven't been before. You can do that, Lord. You can do that. You've done that throughout the history of the church. You're going to do it again, and you certainly can do it among us. There's no reason why your spirit might pass over us. Now as we respond with a song, give us lives that respond with complete and total abandon. There's no extension of worship we could offer you that would be overkill. No such thing as wasted worship with you. So lead us in that way, Lord, as a church, especially as we're on the dawn of 2022. Lead us that way. Thank you so much for Matthew 2, and thank you for now giving us the opportunity to respond to you. Do mighty works in our hearts as we sing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.